Hello there, and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent, and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya, and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we focus on how former South African President Nelson Mandela used the power of football to build his country. July the 18th is Nelson Mandela International Day, and 10 years ago, South Africa hosted the 2010 FIFA World Cup. We hear from Neil Tovey, who captained Bafana Bafana at the 1996 Africa Cup of Nations. You know, what a wonderful man, and that, and, and the tournament, we just knew that how could we not be successful then for that man that given us an opportunity to play internationally? That's coming later, plus Stuart on the Manchester City case as the Court of Arbitration for Sport cleared City of committing serious breaches of financial fair play regulations. First, a football resumes in Zambia this weekend. Great news for fans there. And with action back in Tanzania, we had the Dar es Salaam derby last weekend. Simba beating Yanga 4-1 at the National Stadium to go through to the cup final. Half capacity was allowed, so 30,000 fans in the 60,000-seater stadium. And certainly this the biggest game since the resumption of football in certain countries around the continent. We're very sad to hear that the young brother of Tottenham and Ivory Coast right-back Serge Aurier was shot dead in the French city of Toulouse last weekend, reportedly outside a nightclub. Christopher Aurier was playing in France. Amazing to see Serge Aurier having the strength to play for Tottenham on Wednesday night in their 3-1 win over Newcastle. Now, Ivory Coast and Chelsea legend Didier Drogba has seen his hopes of becoming the next president of the Ivory Coast Football Federation, suffering a big setback after the failure of his fellow players to support his candidacy. Drogba was expecting to be backed by the Footballers' Union, headed by former teammate Cyril Domero, but they're supporting Idris Diallo instead, one of the other two candidates. Drogba's also failed to win the endorsement of the local coaches' association, the referees and the association of former professionals, who are supporting rivals Sorry Jabate. So not looking good for Drogba either. Well, it's more or less done for Drogba because as per the Federation rules, Steve, endorsements are required to enable one continue with the presidency bid, of which, as we've seen, Drogba has zero. So it's looking very much like it will be a two-horse race between Diallo and Diabate, both of whom, of course, have held senior positions within the National Federation. I mean, Diallo is the outgoing FA president and Diabate has served as vice president and boss of the local league. And Steve, look, I know we've talked about this in length before, and especially the first time when it happened, when uh, Drogba got zero votes on his way to losing to Diabate. But I think the former Chelsea man once again really needs to go back to the drawing board. Because if for nothing else, this has been a classic case to show that money and fame won't always get you what you want. I mean, Drogba even had fellow stars, the likes of Yaya Toure, back him for the post. But in the end, as we've seen, no one back home was interested, you know. So he really has to look for ways to, you know, get himself much more actively involved with football in his motherland. Drogba, he did leave the Ivory Coast very young, just aged five years old. And despite him 
captaining the Ivorian national team. I mean, they qualified for the 2006 World Cup, an achievement which people still say to date helped halt a civil war, Steve. And of course, he is the country's all-time top scorer. So there is all that, yes, but there's still a huge disconnect in terms of what he's done for the country's football in retirement. And yes, he spent his childhood in France, and you can see really how it's shaped his mindset. But at the end of the day, Steve, it wasn't a wise move to announce his candidature for a post in the Ivory Coast and announce it from France. (laughs) You know, he announced his bid to lead Ivorian football, having never attended a local league match, at least going by local reports. I mean, come on, Steve, it almost comes across, you know, as a sense of entitlement that just because he did this and this as a player, then it warrants this and this later on. And that's not really the case. So it was also quite inconsiderate, if you ask me, to make known his presence in Egypt in 2019 during the Nations Cup and not really take time out to visit the Ivorian team in camp. And it's all these things combined that bring about that huge disconnect. And if you ask me, Steve, it's at this point that Drogba really needs to needs to change his advisors, if you ask me, because his actions have done nothing, absolutely nothing to endear him to the local people. I mean, at the end of the day, the Ivorians, they don't need a savior from abroad, you know, who's going to fly in and rescue their football. Not at all. They need leaders who understand the issues that plague the football in Ivory Coast and are able to give solutions to take it forward. Yeah, so issues around how much Didier Drogba is in touch with football back home in Ivory Coast. Now, 10 years ago, South Africa hosted the 2010 FIFA World Cup, the tournament being played in Africa for the first time, indeed the only time so far. And in South Africa, July is Nelson Mandela Month, as the nation celebrates the birthday of the former president on the 18th of July. That date is also Nelson Mandela International Day. Well, as well as being one of Africa's greatest leaders and statesmen, Mandela was a remarkable leader in that he fully realised the power of sport. And there were three tournaments in particular where his presence and interest were very notable. That was the 1995 Rugby World Cup, which South Africa hosted and won, that a year after Mandela became president. Then the 1996 Africa Cup of Nations, which South Africa also hosted and won, and the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, when Mandela had retired by then, but made his final public appearance during the closing ceremony, having campaigned for the country to host. Well, last weekend, the South Africa Institute of Foreign Affairs and the University of Johannesburg held an online seminar on Nelson Mandela's soccer diplomacy, on how Mandela used the power of sport and lessons that can be learned. Well, I attended online. It was very interesting indeed. One of the speakers was Neil Tovey. He captained South Africa at the 1996 Nations Cup. He only made his international debut at the age of 30, as South Africa had an international ban because of apartheid, which was lifted in 1992. Well, Tovey had lots to say, first on how on the day that Mandela was inaugurated as president in 1994, Mandela went to watch the game against Zambia being played as part of the day's celebrations and how he went to talk to the South Africa team at half-time. 
to leave uh, all those heads of state on that particular day. And even his security did not know he was coming. He had to rally. They had to rally themselves around quickly because usually when, when he would come to a stadium, there would be a, obviously days in advance, there would be a security checks and everything would be taking place. And uh, Rory Stane, who headed up his security, didn't have any inclination that he was coming to the match that day. And to wait around 40 minutes at halftime, when we got given the shout at halftime that he was coming to visit, uh, usually halftime was about 10 to 15 minutes. We did not worry. We would wait an hour. We would wait two days for him to come to a match if we had to. So what a special occasion. We were, we were deadlocked at nil-nil. And then after his inspirational talk at halftime, and, and we were suddenly tunnel up within 15 minutes. And, you know, that, that bears testimony to what a special man he was, what he did for, for sportsmen and giving us the belief. I mean, his moments during the AFCON, AFCON in 96, uh, um, he would give me a phone call before every, every match and say, you know, obviously he was, a, obviously we know he was a very busy man uh, and could not attend all the matches, but uh, every time there was a match to be played, he'd give me a call before the match and say, look, we know what the pressures were, what the Springboks had done with their, their success in 95, but just go out and enjoy it. And uh, we know that you, you will do the job. Don't put pressure on yourselves. Just go out there and enjoy the game. And, uh, and as a team, uh, is everybody fit and everybody looking forward to the match? And uh, even on the night before the tournament, we had a dinner and he attended and he came through to the hotel. And I'll never, ever forget this, how humble a person he was. When he walked into that room uh, and there was the players' wives, families, the hotel staff, everybody that was there that night, uh, when he walked into that room, he greeted each and every single person in that room. There would not be anyone more special than anyone else. Uh, he greeted even the, the hotel staff. Um, and, and that was, that was really stood out for me that didn't matter where he was, he would greet and talk and not just greet. He would have a conversation with you and ask you about you and your family. And, and in my case, uh, and, and, and have a large discussion. And, and so, you know, what a wonderful man. And that, and, and the tournament, we just knew that how could we not be successful then for that man that had given us an opportunity to play internationally? How can we not be successful for him? And, uh, as we know how we grew in the tournament and got better and better and better and knew how it brought together all the different facets of the fans. Uh, you just had to have a look at uh, that, that that in the final, that, that particular day. If you just had a look at the spectrum of the stadium and all the all the different races that were there present that day, and um, how it united, how it brought together the, the people and all different race groups, where the rugby players, yes, they had it, but on that particular day, it brought together the whole country and brought together whites that then took an interest in football uh, in, in, the, in the black national game uh, was immense what it had done for the country. And, and in my life, how it put my life into perspective and, and gave me an opportunity, a profile. Uh, I've been at functions with FIFA and CAF on the on, on African continent and the world stage where that iconic photo with Madiba and myself receiving a trophy, uh, 
has has laid a platform for for my profile and where I've gone in the game and kept me in the game. And I'm having photo photo opportunities with people that have been done much more in the game than I've done. But truly, that iconic photo with Madiba has just given me that that opportunity. And uh, but more so, given me that opportunity to be look at to be humble in one's life, like like Madiba was. Amazing stories. That's Neil Tovey. He captained South Africa at the 1996 Nations Cup. It's Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. On the show today, looking at how former South African President Nelson Mandela used the power of sport to benefit his country.、Uh, this is Nelson Mandela Month in South Africa, as the nation celebrates the birthday of Mandela, often referred to as Madiba, his clan name. The 18th of July is also Nelson Mandela International Day. So last weekend, the South African Institute of Foreign Affairs and the University of Johannesburg held a very interesting online seminar on Nelson Mandela's soccer diplomacy. Another of the speakers at this online seminar was Danny Jordan, a huge figure in South African sport and currently president of the South Africa Football Association. And Jordan was head of the organising committee for the 2010 World Cup. Nelson Mandela understood that sport alone cannot achieve. A non-racial and equal society, but sport is a very important trigger, a contributor, or a starting point、uh, in that process. Nelson Mandela understood that the use of sport as a diplomatic tool, but clearly not the only factor in building a non-racial society. Madiba pursued an inclusive non-racial society as a commitment and as his life struggle. So Danny Jordan, they're saying that Nelson Mandela knew that sport couldn't solve all of the problems, but that it's a hugely powerful tool, Ida. Steve Mandela said it best in his Laureus speech in South Africa, where he said that sport has the power to change the world. It was an iconic moment, forever caught on film. And the best part about it, I would say, is that Mandela continued to make good on those words. That was all the way back in 2000, and of course, recently we have seen, you know, examples of African leaders taking a somewhat novel approach to sport. North Africa, for one, has always taken sports very seriously, but it's not really something that has been too commonplace in sub-Saharan Africa, truth be told. But we're now also seeing slowly the likes of Rwanda's Paul Kagame, for example, taking up that mantle. Steve, let me tell you a quick story. So a while back,、uh, the NBA champions, Toronto Raptors, their general manager, Masai Ujiri, held a meeting with various African leaders. Ujiri, of course, has strong African connections; his father being Nigerian and his mom being Kenyan. So, in that meeting were the presidents of Rwanda, Kenya, and Senegal. So he talked to them and pitched to them the importance of sport in developing a country's economy, and he challenged them to improve on their sporting infrastructure. A while later, Steve Rwanda put up the world-class Kigali Arena and did so in under nine months. And of course, you know Senegal had been busy constructing the Dakar Arena. So as a result, both countries, that being Rwanda and Senegal, got the rights to host different rounds of the inaugural Basketball Africa League, which is a huge deal because it's a collaboration between the NBA and FIBA here in Africa. Of course, now postponed because of COVID nineteen, but it will eventually happen. And the long story short, Steve, is that Kenya missed out. 
And it's really, really unfortunate because you can see that, you know, the Dakar Arena, the Kigali Arena have become continental attractions. We're seeing American artists, for example, coming to perform in Kigali in Rwanda. So sports is a huge tool, Steve, to drive the economy and Africa will be a better place one day once the leaders realize this. Yes, thanks a lot to Ida. Nelson Mandela certainly knew how much sport means to so many people. This is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. You can follow us on Twitter at Planet Sport FA. You can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Well, now we go to social media. And last week we asked, are records important in football? Uh, With Liverpool having wrapped up the Premier League title, their first in 30 years, there were several records available for the Reds to target breaking. Well, manager Jurgen Klopp said, it's not important for me. All I want to do is to win football matches and we are the champions. So we asked, are these records important or is it all about winning titles? I should say these comments were before Liverpool missed out on the chance of breaking Manchester City's record of 100 points in a season as they lost to Arsenal on Wednesday. Here's Planet Sport Football Africa's Yvonne Mangunda. Thanks, Steve. And we start today on WhatsApp with Lamina Fedra in The Gambia. Winning titles is important, says Lamina. But it is very special when titles are accompanied by classic records. Records make titles special in many ways. Dela Akafia is in Ghana. The records are also important, but the main target is winning the trophy, says Dela. So with this, the winning the trophy is more important than the record set. Lamine Jaju is in the Gambia, and Lamine believes that the only thing that matters is winning the title. Records are not important to me, says Lamine. What is important is to win the league. That will make the fans happy, the players happy, and the coach happy, and in Liverpool's case, especially so, as it's their first title for 30 years. In Nigeria, Mavelas Olarewaju Abubakar agrees that the most important thing is to just win the championship. I support what the Liverpool coach says concerning their records, says Mavelas. Winning the titles is paramount, regardless of the points difference. Even if they win by just a point, a title is still a title. And certainly true, isn't it? As one single point was exactly the margin of Manchester City's title win over Liverpool last season. But Mohamed in Sierra Leone does believe that records are important. Yes, setting new records is important because that makes you a worthy champion at the end of the day. A champion is a champion, but a worthy champion who sets new records is good too, says Mohammed. And Abdullah Nying in the Gambia agrees. Definitely the beautiful game is about winning titles, says Abdullah. But breaking records always makes it something for the fans to boast about because every team wants to better the previous record set, which in turn makes the league much more interesting and competitive. Moses in Malawi agrees. Everything matters in the game of football, says Moses. For example, we're able to say it's 30 years since Liverpool last celebrated winning the top league in England. Results matter, and it is statistics that help us differentiate between Messi and Ronaldo. Statistics and records are what give us reality when we decide who is the greatest team or player of all time. And a Bremer bar in the Gambia makes a similar point. To me, 
Records are important as well as winning the title, says Abrima. Breaking records and winning games go together. A team can't break records without winning games and titles. For instance, take a look at players like Maradona, Raul, Luis Figo, and the current superstars, which are Messi and Ronaldo. They're still remembered and mentioned whenever the game of football is mentioned because of all their records. So yes, records are really important. Martin Moses in Kenya says, Records are so important, it gives you a chance to be considered the best ever in history. For example, Real Madrid. They set a record for being the first club to defend the Champions League title and went on to win it three consecutive times. Until and unless another club achieves the same, they'll always be considered as the kings of Europe. In Liverpool's case, Klopp has to work to make sure that they break the 100 points record set by City. That way, they'll etch their name in the books of history. Modu Jack in the Gambia also believes records are important. In anything you do, setting a new record gives a perfect definition of what they're capable of doing by linking what's been possible in the past to the present. So yes, records are good, says Modu. And here now is Sambu One, also in the Gambia. Records are very important as they reflect one's mind to the past and the future generation will learn from it, says Sambu One. In Modu, G.J. Kali, also in the Gambia, agrees. Records are very, very important as far as football is concerned because other teams set records, so you really need to break them as well. And finally, Moses Bebe Zuze in Zambia says simply, it's all about winning the title, nothing more. Right. Well, thanks, Yvonne. That's Yvonne Mangunda there. So a good balance of opinions. Uh, Thanks for all of those views. And to say again, these comments were made before Liverpool missed out on the chance of breaking Man City's record of 100 points in a season as they lost 2-1 to Arsenal on Wednesday. Uh, Also on social media, by the way, we've been having a great debate on our Facebook page over whether George Ware was the greatest African footballer ever. Uh, Lots of opinions there. You can have a look on our Facebook page. That's Planet Sport Football Africa. Now let's go to our European football expert, Stuart Weir, in the UK. So Manchester City successfully overturning their ban from European club competitions as the Court of Arbitration for Sport cleared City of committing serious breaches of financial fair play regulations. They still, though, have an $11 million fine, meaning that they were found guilty of lesser charges. Now, initially, UEFA found City had breached financial fair play by deliberately inflating the value of sponsorship deals. Well, Man City manager Pep Guardiola says his team deserve an apology, but Tottenham boss Jose Mourinho called it a disgraceful decision saying it would now be better to allow clubs to spend whatever they like. Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp voiced concerns regarding financial fair play, which is at the heart of this matter. What do you make of this, Stuart? Well, the decision of the Court of Arbitration for Sport to overturn UEFA's ban of Manchester City from the Champions League for two years and to reduce the fine came as a big surprise. In making the judgment, the court said that the alleged breaches were either not established or time-barred. The court did, however, decide that Manchester City had failed to cooperate with the court and that an $11 million fine should apply. And now, the point about allegations being time-barred is that offences must be prosecuted within five years. The heart of the allegations is that Manchester City's sponsorship income from Etihad Airlines was actually paid by the club's owners and not the airline, which would have meant that it shouldn't have counted as income. 
The FFP, or Financial Fair Play Rules, were introduced in 2011 to prevent clubs going bankrupt by overspending. The rules specify that a club, more or less, can only spend what you earn and is not allowed to have a financial loss of more than $34 million in any three-year period. The adjustment is really good news for Manchester City, who were set to lose up to $250 million had they been banned from Europe for two years, with the threat also that some of the star players would leave and that they would struggle to recruit new players of that calibre with no Champions League football to offer. But the verdict is a disaster for UEFA and may, frankly, spell the end of financial fair play rules. And it seems incredible that UEFA decided to base their case on alleged offences outside the five-year period. And despite having access to leaked emails, which gave them information they would not normally have, UEFA were unable to win the case. While some people think the financial fair play rules are essential to establish financial fair play, the counter-argument is that it actually can perpetuate the gap between the rich and the poor. But there's a feeling in the game that Manchester City have got away with it. Jose Mourinho and Jurgen Klopp have been quite outspoken about this, with Mourinho saying, financial fair play? I think it's over. Not because I don't agree with it, but because I don't agree with the circus surrounding it. Hmm. Jurgen Klopp says, I don't want them, presumably Manchester City, to lose money. It's just that if there are rules, then I think we all stick to them, not just some of us. I know you can say, come on, forget it. Don't worry about what someone else is spending. But there will be people with a lot of money who will be very influential. If there are rules, we should all stick to them. The clear implication of Klopp's comments is that he did not think that Manchester City had been sticking to the rules. Right, well, we're asking for your thoughts on this on social media this week. Uh, The principle of financial fair play is that clubs should only be able to spend what they earn uh, so that the smaller teams have more of a chance against clubs with very rich owners. And some allege that rich clubs are bending the rules. So would it be better just to scrap financial fair play and let clubs spend as much as they like? You can post a comment on our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero that's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero should financial fair play be scrapped and Stuart, with Liverpool missing out on the chance of breaking the record of 100 points in a season you'd have to say it's been a strange couple of weeks for the reds after their four nil defeat at manchester city they had comfortable wins over brighton and aston villa Then they were held to a draw by Burnley before losing to Arsenal after being ahead in both those games. I mean, I know they've nothing to play for, but they look a shadow of their former selves and the defence looks really shaky. I mean, both the Arsenal goals this week were gifted by the Liverpool defence. And actually, Arsenal started the resumption being beaten by Manchester City and then a disastrous defeat at Brighton. But since then, Arsenal have beaten Sheffield United, Wolves, Tottenham and Liverpool. And they came from behind to beat Tottenham and Liverpool. So Mikel Arteta does seem to be getting things together. Now, Steve, we've talked a bit about home advantage. Before the shutdown, the home team was taking 57% of points. And in the first 62 games since the resumption, the home team has taken 64% of the points. So unlike Germany, 
home advantage seems still to be an advantage in the Premier League. We've also talked a bit about substitutes, and it has been confirmed that clubs will be able to use five substitutes again next season. And now the latest statistics show the average number of subs per game is 3.8. Manchester United comes closest to using all five subs, averaging 4.8 per game, closely followed by Norwich, Brighton, Liverpool and Arsenal. And Burnley, amazingly, only use on average 1.7 subs per game. And Burnley looks certain to finish in the top half of the table, so it's working. I need to tell you about Dr. Rashford. Yes, indeed. Manchester United forward Marcus Rashford is to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of Manchester for his campaign against child poverty. And he's the youngest person ever to receive an honorary doctorate. Steve, Chelsea have a new kit sponsor, the mobile phone company 3. And in the first four games in the new shirts, Chelsea have twice scored three goals and twice conceded three goals. Talk about taking your sponsorship seriously. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thanks a lot, Stuart. And the English Premier League season ends next weekend. FA Cup semi-finals this weekend. Arsenal, Man City on Saturday. Man United, Chelsea on Sunday. Well, that's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers and Yvonne Mangunda in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi and Stuart Weir in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.